Hey, Remakers, welcome to the podcast and to our final episode for 2023. Today, we have on the show a systems thinker, a mentor, a CEO, a builder of worlds. We have none other than Jack Manning Bancroft. And for those of you who maybe have heard of him but aren't super familiar with his work, he has been a New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. He's a graduate of Sydney and Stanford Universities. He has human rights awards and he's the youngest person in Australia to get an honorary PhD. So um, he's one impressive dude, in, as, as he might. <laughs> well, he, he probably wouldn't say that about himself. He would say dude, though, and you would like him for that. Um, he's somebody who has written a book called Hoodie Economics, which is like, come as you are. Let's value what matters. This is a place for all of us. There's room for all of us around this table. And he's building um, something that I just want to give you a little bit of background on before we go into this conversation because it's pretty mind-boggling and you just need some time to get your head around it. But first, just as a bit of a, a bit more intro about Jack. So he's the founder and CEO of AIM, which is the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, which he started when he was just 19 years old, studying at Sydney University. And he worked to bring 20 uh, Indigenous high school kids in Redfern and connect them to mentors at university. Now, that model has since expanded to more than 52 countries, thousands of people, and work that they describe as shifting deep entrenched systems by valuing the intelligence of marginalized youth and communities, bridging them with people and organizations with power to create a healthy relational network and an alternative economic framework. So Jack is all about valuing the intelligence and the gifts and the offerings of those outside the margins. He is all about indigenous systems thinking, the oldest continuous knowledge system on the planet. And he works now as an honorary fellow at the Deakin University Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab with people like Tyson Yocoporta, who many of you will know as the author of Sand Talk and more. So it's this incredibly impressive thing that he's built, right? But now they have something new to offer to the world. And that is called Imagination with the nation in capital letters. And he describes it as a virtual or a digital nation, as well as a network of networks and a lab for humanity to solve some of the biggest challenges of our time in relation to each other, generating the tools that we need. So The goal with imagination is pretty much the polar opposite to the goal of other social networks that we've come to know. It's not about addicting us. It's not about building up your impressive platform of all your followers. It's not about keeping us shopping and spending so that they can sell us to more advertisers. It's about connecting us to unlikely connections with purpose to solve some of the biggest challenges of our time to build real world impact, um, like transformative impact. So they want to, for example, birth a thousand new indigenous knowledge systems labs, bring a million young people from marginalized communities to become imagination presidents and leaders, work with a thousand cities and councils to accredit them in custodianship and mentoring, help a thousand organizations to become joy corporations, plant a thousand imagination labs in schools, empower um, citizens to network to solve world problems together and so much more. It's really pretty amazing. So we talk about this, but we also talk about the philosophy behind it, the values behind it. It is a complex, wide ranging, challenging discussion. Um, and really, cause that's, that's who Jack is. He's not somebody who does easy answers or 
um, elevator pitches, you know, even for super fancy people, as he explains in this interview, he's somebody who invites us into complexity. I hope that you get a lot out of this conversation. Here is Jack Manning Bancroft. the Rainmakers podcast. It is an absolute delight to see your face this morning and to be able to connect with you over the the weird and wonderful Zoom boxes that we kind of love and hate, but that do sort of bring us together. What's that? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to hanging out. Um, I wanted to say, so here's my copy of, of Hoodie Economics. And I don't know if you can see this, but I've basically earmarked, underlined, and written across Jimmy Page. Um, which, you know, my six-year-old's like, mom, really? That's a book. You shouldn't do that. I'm like, no, no. It's all right. He wants us to engage with the material. I just want to say, firstly, like, thank you for writing this. Um, I love that I picked it up in an airport, that it's that kind of a thing that hopefully people are, are looking at a book called Hoodie Economics with a hoodie on the cover and thinking, oh, okay, this isn't your typical economics textbook um, or treaties on, you know, all ways that we need to solve capitalism or whatever. I feel like you've really um, kind of lived what you're talking about in this, which is inviting people into a bit of a values revolution and like come as you are and we are enough and we don't come into this world inheriting like debt and lack and needing to put our nose to the grindstone to make as much money to accumulate as much stuff to die. Like there's more to life which is not a new message, right? These are messages that hopefully we've been getting, you know, from all of the world's wisdom traditions and all of this along the way. But I'm curious for you, what sparked this for you? Like what made you first want to write Hoodie Economics? Where did you get the title from? Like, just tell us a little bit about your journey there. Yeah, I think the the practical um, part of it was I've been working on trying to, attack and equity uh, for 20 odd years, um, give or take. And, and, you know, we started with a node in a network or connecting two nodes in a network and, you know, thinking about the problem that we've inherited being a, a network design challenge, not a human design challenge. And so originally understanding that as a, you know, 19 year old is, well, let's build a bridge between two different groups, you know, between a group that Indigenous kids at school and non-Indigenous uni students. Um, and so we looked at that bridge and those two nodes and um, being connected and that scaled and had like impact and and movement for those two different nodes in the network but there was all of these and the more that I grew up and the more we learned and you start to see that there is lots and lots of nodes in the network in every place that we're moving and most of our imagination almost stops at humans and it definitely stops at borders and and maybe that's by design and maybe that's a whole other, you know, um, piece we can go into. But the, it just seemed very clear to me the more that I saw the challenge of inequity was about the whole rock together. Like you can't look at it separated and the moment you look at separating it, you limit the capacity for your ability to design and... So that was sort of like the stuff that had been 
burgeoning along like uh, I don't know if it's a word, but um, yeah. And then we rolled out our work. We sort of started to open up more nodes in the network. So we started offering opportunities for people to engage around the world to build these little bridges and then started to think about how we could connect it together. And we really let it go nuts. Like we went from a control and command kind of playground and repeatability and following your like business capital um, frameworks and the Stanford's and Harvard models or whatever. And then we went like full throttle, like mycelium, let's just plant this stuff and really try and live it like, and, and see what happens if you actually embrace emergence and feel the heat in leadership when everyone looks at you like you're a swear word idiot, like, you know, that that you, when you're saying back to people, I don't know the answers, um, but I think it's worth investing in putting these two different groups together um, and actually think it might be worth investing in putting us all together. So then we built, started as it emerged, built sort of um, domes around it, which ended up with us building a university. And then when we built the uni, we're like, what do we teach? Um, So one of the imagination was what we taught and then mentoring, um, organising change, and then hoodie economics was kind of like floating in and around there. So we, we, we wrote the first sort of bit of writing on hoodie economics and the last seven or eight years, like, again, in attacking this inequity piece, we'd done story um, and shifted the story narrative uh, for people and and that's that had got into an element of what you value um, in whatever the ecosystem of where we're, we'd worked within. But all these other nodes, like, they all ladder up to or fall down to um, the currency that we, in, we, we transact with every single day and that really wasn't moving, like, the value of that dollar the shareholder inside of that of Indigenous knowledge systems or intelligence from outside the margins or nature or imagination or joy or kindness, like it still wasn't in there. And so you're just creating this like backlog of talent moving into a system that was still funneling down to these blockages in the arteries where the value system around that coin was still very much um, reduced to like very, very tiny elements of what a value of life looks like. Uh, and then the big challenge with the sort of two moments of the big challenge, like just before the pandemic came, um, we uh, I like I went on Q&A, which is a TV show in Australia, and um, the guy, Sandy Grant, who published a lot of my mum's books at Hardy Grant, um, called me afterwards and said, you know, we talked about salaries and executive salaries and how his old man used to be CEO and had like a salary of like 150 grand or something, how crazy they are now. And that was one of the things we talked about in the show. He said, look, I think you've got a big book in you. Um, you know, if you want to write it, like write it. And then two or three weeks later, the pandemic really hit. We shut down and like changed our whole operation. And I never felt a feeling like, we are never going to get a chance to rewrite the rules um, like we have right now. And this is devastating, horrifying and scary. And for those that want to move the way it works, we've got to write. We've got to write the rules and we've got to rewrite the system while everyone pauses because there won't be another pause maybe ever again. And so then I called Sandy. I was like, oh, I think I can write this book. I think it's called Hoodie Economics. And he's like, oh, okay, just get me two pages. And I sat down and typed <laughs> Hoodie and I just didn't have the thing like um and when it when the book then the second part where the book became real was we set ourselves a quest as 
in the rewriting of the rules, it felt like the pandemic window was closing. And the last big idea that I've been thinking about for a while was how can we harness the best of the internet and build an alternative to the social networks we've inherited, build a relational network, build a country in between all the countries called imagination, um, and then see if that can harness the best collective skill set of all these nodes in the network to move together and be a lab for humanity to then really accelerate solving some of these challenges and moving it. So we sort of cast that vision. We said that the economy inside was going to be hoodies, which is what had been the, the token from our work from the beginning. Um, and then I really had to write the book. And what the book became was a philosophy for how we would build this network and the underpinning values of, of designing a country. So it became a real sort of founding text for us to to come back to and i think why maybe the dog ears are there is it's been touched <laughs> by so many people like it's sort of not my hero journey book it's all these other people you know i was giving it out to people really early and as we we're going through this process the design it's really documenting the philosophy behind the design process as to how would you start a new country and if you built into the internet what would you need to build and then how would you sort of set about behaving so i think it it meant it was really anchored in a practical playground where we had to apply it. And I didn't know what Web3 was until writing it. Like, and now I kind of know that our token, like that hoodie token kind of sits between Web3, Web2, the early internet and planet Earth. Like, and that's okay. You know, like it can translate and move. And yeah, so that's kind of where it came out of. And I'm very happy it's done. And I never want to write that book ever again. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a whole, um, there's a whole other uh, lane we could go down there of like everyone wants to have written a book but no one actually wants to sit down and write one and is that actually a remotely enjoyable experience or how do you make that work and how do you make it torturous but like I feel like I, I owe it to our audience to back up a bit here and I love that you've already dived into kind of all of it um, and and made all of these connections and talking about you know the coin versus the things that the system values around it and where's the emphasis on joy, whereas the emphasis on nature, on, you know, indigenous knowledge systems. But for people, we've given people a little bit of an introduction to you and to AIM who may not know you already. But can you tell us a little bit more? Can you just situate us a little bit more in kind of your work and, and how that, you know, where that came from? So you were, you're a young guy, you're at university yourself, um, and you had this kind of epiphany around mentoring as not just a nice to have or this thing that is this kind of like vanilla, like be a good person and go out and mentor and be mentored. But actually like this is this is system changing, world changing stuff here. And this is something that you want to devote your life's work to. Yeah, I think there's like a combo, like the the orientation is really interesting. Like we we can orient through a really reductive lens. So I can say the word mentoring and you can be like, oh, he's the mentoring guy. Or I can say I build a digital country and you can go, that's hard for me to get my head around, but then everything in context, you know, and, and I think when you look to the biggest possible view, then everything's in context. So if we stay there three or four times, like I've literally built a digital country called Imagination um, with a bunch of other people from around the world from 50-odd different countries. It's a, it's a network that can hopefully revitalise like what the UN wants to work on and give us an MIT Media Labs sort of um lab for us which centers nature and centers imagination and centers mentoring the start of the work 20 years ago is i got thrown into a world of between um and they made like an australian story on the the start of the the story which i think is on the internet somewhere but um 
it was basically a classic kind of unlikely connections, which is what our whole network's based on. They've dropped me into St. Paul's College, where um, one of the oldest sort of residential colleges in um, maybe the oldest in Australia, the oldest university, and you know people wearing suits and ties and academic gowns and waiters waiting on you three nights a week and really gnarly heart of privilege. Um, and then I was hanging out at the Indigenous Centre at the time as well and just trying to think about, you know, the the reason why I was thinking about how to change things wasn't because I was, like, patterned with some amazing, like, uh, moral code. It was I talked my way into a scholarship and I felt guilty that, you know, there were many other Aboriginal kids who were much more um, disadvantaged in my family and, like, that I knew. And so I wanted to make sure if I got this thing that I could put something back and that if I put something back I knew I wouldn't I'd be able to look at myself in the mirror for that I wasn't having this scholarship and taking my Aboriginality for a ride. And so I kind of, you know, we, we can be, our motivation can be very imperfect to getting into the doorway, um, into a house where we're not thinking about ourselves and thinking outward facing or thinking about a system or thinking about how we can change things. And once I started, like stumbled across doing the work, the again, as I said earlier, like I don't think we're fundamentally flawed. I think if I've, if I accepted a belief system that we were fundamentally evil or flawed um, as a species, then I don't think any of us would ever move. Um, so I had to focus on the light, even in the darkest sort of corridors and um, and focus on the potential of us uh, for movement. And, and I then I just was really interested in what happens, like you can be reasonably smart and write a book or um reasonably smart and get on TV and reasonably smart and hold court at a dinner party and tell everybody how things don't work. Like analysis takes a certain form of intelligence, but there's not many people who write the next chapter, which is so what, what are we going to do? What's the plan? You know, and that, I'm, I want to live there. Like I want to live in the action, in the movement, and I want to live around the ideas and applying it. So I was very interested in this challenge, which had been looked at of Indigenous inequity in Australia through a number of very flawed prisms and just go, okay, like a bunch of people have worked their guts out, like from the Indigenous side to get the most basic of human rights for us and how do we look at the network and where we position intelligence. And so the early work was really, you know, the mentoring was a device for us to be able to come together in relation and look out at a bigger story and then having non-Indigenous people while they're still young in a formative relational pattern with Indigenous high school kids who are still young and and be able to see the thing kind of mush away, the race and the, like, um, the stereotypes and actually get into a level of complexity around the exchange of intelligence and, um, and our historical journeys. And then you create a plot point um, and a relationship anchor point, which before that was separated between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but then the history for all those people that are a part of it, they've got an anchor point in their life to go, well, that's when we were together. And so, yeah, that was the essence of the work at the beginning. And then, yeah, over the last 20 years, it's been how do you how do you find the frame that can genuinely have a crack? And, and I think we stumbled across it with the development of imagination, which I think is got a chance to change the way the whole internet works and the way that we behave and give us an example of the best of, of some of our abilities and fuse all together. So, yeah, we're very aware of the responsibility of what comes with what's sort of been born out of this network. Yeah, look, imagination is, um, and thank you for for kind of walking us back a little bit there, just to 
<laughs> it took me a while as, as, as a reader to really get my head around it. Like a person thinking, okay, he's reinventing what a social network can be in a social network. that's not just driven off of this kind of like weird surveillance capitalism model, but that is uh, kind of bringing mentoring with unlikely connections. You talk about unlikely connections times five is this really powerful kind of um, model for, for getting groups together to do interesting things. Um, and, and I think that I am starting to really understand imagination a bit better. And look, I've been watching what you've been saying about it online and, and all the rest of it, but it's probably one of those things that I could talk to you about for 3000 hours and <laughs> still be, you know, kind of impressed at, at this sort of depth of what you're trying to do here. Can you tell for people who like, where is it at right now? So it's not just an idea. You've got funding, you're launching, you're doing this thing. What is it for people who are like, okay, what would this look like for me to get involved? What are the kind of opportunities that you're wanting to create here for people to be part of this um, network of networks and this kind of digital nation that you're creating? Yeah, I think the the first phase, so we've, we've given ourselves um, a death date for imagination from the outset. So the, the country opened three or four weeks ago. Um, instead of standing on a big stage at a conference or doing media stuff or whatever, um, we've just in the last five to six years gone, we're just going to grow at the rate of relations and just let this thing move as healthily as we possibly can so we can actually have a, you know, a deep connection with people and, and deepen that and then let it move as it needs to. So the people that are listening, it's kind of a bit of a combination. Like I can, I know how well enough to give you the, I like the soundbite that'll give you some one or two things that you can grab onto, or you can actually do some work. You can come onto the website and you can go on a tour of imagination for 25 minutes and you can mm. see what it could be like to go to another country. How much work do you do when you want to research what it would be like to go and travel to another nation or go on mm. another experience? So mm. I think part of the challenge is like we've built something and you're welcome um, to come, you know, but after that, it's going to require a little bit of translation. It's going to require you coming over to Indigenous systems and thinking about how they work. It's going to require some putting down of your default settings of what you think the internet is built for or, or what our platforms are built towards. So that's the sort of punk Brad answer for me. And then the, the specific one is what's happening right now is we looked a lot at Robin Dunbar's work as we were building this and Tyson Yonker Porter is really heavily involved in helping work through a lot of the design work. And, and the temptation with creating like any platform, I think, in the internet is you suddenly or anywhere, like any releasing anything, growth is like the big numbers are the things that you think you need. So you're like, oh, I need a million people in there for this to be justified, you know. Um, I, and we started to look again, at really, really isolate in at the node of the network and just go, if we can build a 10-year story arc for this, so we can understand how we grow the visas that are coming in, and then who's first? Who are the first people of a new country? And how much time do we have to spend with them to make sure that the growth or the increase next is, is a natural wave that's healthy. Um, so we've got about 70 visas open right now for the custodians of imagination and really our primary focus is for network of network leaders and that'll allow, if you think of like a water fountain, like looking at the cup at the top of that water fountain, that'll allow for a really healthy then next roll down of the water once we fill up that cup. But designing with like restrictions and discipline, imagination the country we've built it won't be for 2 billion people and that's super unhealthy. Like not one group can govern that. Govern that. 
But I hope, you know, the code, the, the, the code which we've open sourced and everything we're going to leave behind with imagination gives a space for 198 to 1,000 to 10,000 other imaginations to be built, you know, that we can build an example and a lab that, that people can connect around. And where I think it gets really exciting is if your four systems change, if you've got a solution, like if you're not just in the analytical, if you've got something where you're like, I think this can change something, not just in my backyard, but I think it has a potential to change things around the world. And if you then want to then apply that in a network of networks and be a part of a lab that works together and share openly your knowledge and learn from other places and spaces, then game on. Like if you don't see a visa that we've got, pitch in a visa to us. And so there's one specific example of, of a guy that we're working with from Germany who's come into the systems change residency um, visas that we pulled together. He's working on this project called Heliogenesis which currently there's like 10,000 times the amount of um, power we need for the earth, hits the earth every day from the sun. We just don't know how to harness it. You know, the solar panels is, is one model, but it's got really like challenging scale and restrictions and et cetera, et cetera. But plants, plants know how to harvest it. So he's working on how we can use the process of plant um, circulation of energy to then potentially power a lot human life on earth. Like, cool, that guy's worth betting on, you know, or Hannah from... <laughs> Welcome, come in, yes. Exactly. And then it's yeah. just super exciting game on. So that systems change studio, we've got 13 residencies a year, and then we're going to make a television series with um, the professors, which are our, our puppets we've been working with for seven years, who are the heroes of imagination because puppets are our pathway into imagination, and which Jim Henson and those cats have shown us too well. And these these professors work for grown-ups, like for us to remind us that we, we need an imagination. And But they'll we'll then release that series out as a tool um, that can then, you know, cascade out in the world. So we're kind of looking at this incubator space. So we some things which are inside imagination, which are really the intensive people working on the lab work. And then we want to create tools that can then roll out and anyone can access it. So Hoodie Economics is a tool. Um, we work on a feature film that anyone can access. We're going to release a mentoring app that anyone can take on to then train themselves to be mentors. Like So all those things are coming down the pipeline in the next decade. We've got this game of life, which is a, a portal into you know an imaginative gameplay playground where we can create a 10-year feature film that all of humanity makes together. That'll be a deck of cards that people can buy together, and that'll be out in the next 12 months as well. So a lot of stuff we've worked on inside. We now want to give away as tools. So there'll be the people doing the work inside imagination. There'll be the people outside. And then there'll be lots of nudges like on the AIM mentoring website over the next 12 months to also just challenge people that whether you need to come into the country, you know, maybe you just need 30 minutes to walk into the bush and you can reclaim some imagination minutes. So we're building a functionality, particularly from um, the attention economy stuff. We got really scared during the, um, the design of it and went, actually, we don't want to build another place in the internet which is fighting for everyone's attention. Um, and we don't want to make uh, make that connective tissue like the thing that everybody is like then wants to spend all their time in imagination and we've built this great platform and then everyone's spending more and more time in there. The point of imagination is to wake us up to get back to life on earth and just reorient our map and our direction. Like we have nature all around us we have healthy relations around us we can make those unlikely connections we can build those mentoring bridges we can build those different economic behaviors we can value different things with our attention and we can do it yesterday like you don't need a platform for that so we'll we'll be working on what areas if you're coming inside it it's like accurate place-based work or it's work to 
you know, for organisations with we're working on an action visa that comes out next year to re, be repatterned as joy corporations and to be in relation with nature, with joy, with peace, with imagination, with mentoring. Um, so there's a few that like are really digestible and scalable for people. Uh, and one particular one with that joy corp is we're still on the lookout for like the network of network leaders for organisations. So we're like, sweet, come in and help shepherd us to all move towards joy and look at how we could be patterned more healthily. So. Yeah, I, I, I think in its best, like we've got a sense of the notes, so we just like make a note, like put it out there, and then we've left the chance for like anyone listening to come back and write a song with us and be like, hey, what about this visa type? Or you know, could I drop in here and rock and roll? Yeah, let's do it together. Yeah. So right now, for someone listening to this right now, going, oh my god, this sounds amazing, and I need to figure out what this guy is talking about for real. Where do they need to go? We'll put this on the show notes for people listening. Yeah, sweet. That, there's like. Um, this one is a reasonably simple pathway. So you go to the AIM Mentoring website, so A-I-M-E, then mentoring.com. You find 25 minutes and whichever way you can actually get into a headspace where you're calm um, and then you watch that tour video so you actually understand as much of the map as possible. And potentially I reckon like, Look, at the bare minimum, hoodie economics will at least bend you into some sort of dimension if you don't finish the book. So I reckon you should probably get that so you understand like the essence of, of the thinking underneath it. Because part of this is trying to, like I was talking to a fancy person the other day on email who was a chief of staff to a, um, a former president. And he, he said, give me the one liner, like I don't have 25 minutes to look at a video. I said, sorry, bro, we've, it's not the right time then. So if if, you, mm. if we can orient ourselves in the map, yeah, then the person listening is going to jump on, look for the visa type really quickly, find something near what they think, but they haven't expanded their imagination. They haven't realised they can write their own one. They haven't taken the time to listen to themselves, to think about their default settings, their patterns. So that's where I think there's time on the bridge where Professor Bobo is going to start to be like the host for us inside and mentoring and just just take a minute. You know, like it might take six months, like, but if you can take that burst now and that curiosity um, and you can channel that into like a design frame to go, my challenge to myself is the energy I'm feeling right now that I'm not going to be so distracted when I stop listening to this podcast that I'm going to then go off into the fight or flight world and I'm going to lose that energy current. Six months from now, I'm going to come back to the website and look at it if I don't know. But if you do know, rock and roll again. Like, it, But I, I think it's that expansion and contraction is something that, you know, I've, I've learned a lot hanging out with Tice and a lot of the Indigenous systems thinkers in this Indigenous knowledge systems lab we set up out of Deakin. Like it's that constant synchronicity like our breath. Like if you put your hand on your heart or your stomach, like you're going in and out all the time, you know, it's just all the time. And if you're not doing that with your thinking and your modalities don't have the capacity to just plot a point, loop back around, look at it through a few different lenses, then you're no chance of being able to capture a systems analysis on it. Like you're always just going to be looking in one dimension and you're not even breathing. And so I think I think they would be some of the steps which I recommend. And the people that are there's this one beautiful guy that we came across like in um, the States named Bobby Fiskin who's just like, he's a gem, um, he's like a beat poet, ate a supercomputer. And, you know, Bobby runs this systems change network and he's one of the first people in the last three or four years as we've been hovering more and more into complexity. He read everything. He read everything we've written. 
And then he was like oriented. He's like, okay, let's go. Like, and, and his referrals or his connections were so strong. So we, we have to work to get to know each other, you know, like we have to really, really work. And, and if we're looking for the last six years, like my, the biggest punk role with this work has been we went from making it very easy for people to give a little bit of their time or their energy. And that was helpful for their like lifestyle, but it didn't shift a system. And, and I think sometimes you need to hold your, hold your nerve a little bit on the bridge and, and let people and know your own value. And like, you know, we're, we've got the longest lab in human history that's, that's contributed so much knowledge into the build of imagination. Like it's, it's worth the effort, you know, it really is worth taking some time to do some work. And, and a lot of it when I don't know the answers to all this stuff, you know, like I'm not pretending to be a sage, like know it all guide. And, and that's also why it's important because if, if people are coming in looking for scripture, then we're fucked. Like, you know, I can't do that. Uh, but if, if someone's a worker, if they're, if they're thinking and we're going to be in relation working out together and moving together, we can solve some of this stuff. But if you're coming in looking for like direction and the answers, this ain't it. Like no leader knows that. Everyone else is just saying that because it's meant to give us a some sort of playground of feeling safe and the leader goes home and cries at night and then we go to bed feeling okay but then the world burns. Like that ain't cool. Like, you know, we've got to look at the challenges and work out how we say I don't know and then try and navigate it together. So, yeah, if you're up for being in a troop and making sense of, of the muck of it all and then hopefully finding real magic, then when it strikes, like when you see the light or you get the diamond or whatever, you know it's real you just know it's real and that's what's been so nice about this process like it's been really 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 hard to make sense of a lot of this thinking and to find the path but when you do strike it you know that you've done it um a lot of indigenous people will say right way like you've done it the right way um and you've gone through the right of passage or you've gone through the right corridors to and you're ready for it and you access it so I'm wondering if you would mind talking to us a little bit about some of the ideas that underpin imagination and the sort of worldview that you're talking about for people who may, you know, and I hope they do, uh, if, it, if it speaks to them, go on that journey of kind of learning more about what this kind of is and get on the bridge and spend some time and let it unfold for them and, and find a place to connect to it. But even if they don't but they're hearing things about um okay you know i'm hearing certainly in more and more of the circles that i'm in people talking about wow indigenous systems thinking is this like wisdom that we've had that that white australia has ignored for all this time it's been right under their noses and now it's ready to export to the world and relational economy and seeing ourselves as in an economic way, not just in our personal lives as like custodians or, you know, the role of like humans on earth, like some of these kind of core fundamental values that that are shaping the worldview that you're building from, I think are just really different to certainly any, any book that has the word economics on the cover that I've ever come across or read. So what does a relational economy kind of, what does that mean to you if I can ask in kind of that that way yeah i think i think there's a few things like we i think a bunch of the patterns that we've inherited um have just put us out of, so far out of context and you know when you do like when you do a form of of, of healthy ceremony in to life you you're oriented in a context where it's 
the map makes sense. And, and I think when we are oriented in a context where we're isolated from our neighbours, we have no relationship with nature beyond like something that we operate, we get from a, a supermarket, we think of every interaction in work as a game um, and underneath the game that there are all these hidden agendas and hidden agendas and hidden agendas and our job is to win the game. And what the rules of the game are, none of them value nature. And then we've got ourselves like a really just awkward orientation of the map. And when you look at, I think where the kind of look away or Indigenous systems thinking or Indigenous like knowledge is all woo-woo or 200 years ago, you know, life expectancy was 35 years and like you're an idiot and do you like your computer or your bottle of water or rada rada. Um, It's not where we fail, I think, is the romanticising of like all Indigenous equals perfect. Like no, Um, there's lots of flaws in every pattern of every system and every micro cosm of every life like we as a species it's one of the things that makes us at the very least interesting um is we've got all of this movement between light and dark often within a moment um and we've all got the capacity to be really dark in our behavior we've got capacity to be very light in our behavior and that's one of the great hopeful um tenants that we've got we've got potential um to move and every single moment we've got potential to move in different directions and we have in many playgrounds around the world, some level of autonomy to direct where we move. I think the so to be like Indigenous people all have the answer, that's just like super lazy design, you know, to just box it in that frame. Where I think it gets really interesting and what I think Tice has really helped us do is create a vocabulary around a translation around Indigenous systems thinking and what we've started digging into with um, with the labs, with the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Labs that we're a part of, and his podcast is the other others is a really great one to kind of dig into different case studies around it with, is it's about process and where in the design queue the the knowledge um, designers are. And that is that's actually a lever that you can see enhancing. Like it doesn't require every building to be brought down. It's can you bring Indigenous knowledge systems to the start of the design queue? And can you, instead of asking us to enter the frame, um, protecting our cultural stories and then having to be exhibitionists and that be our economy, which is where the kids we were supporting had to go into, can we actually come, you know, to the to a government or to a business and go, what's your impact going to look like? What's your strategy look like? And work together on strategy and, and illuminate together the context of the map and in illuminating that context of the map, we can shift what we want to see as the, the course of business and you can still gain profits. Like you can gamble on like the health of the tree. Um, the health of the tree might just not need to be extracted. You know, if you can build enough of a narrative arc around it, there's ways of moving in different, different pathways. And I think where, I, where the translation starts to be really interesting for me to modern economics is Think about song lines in Australia. That's just super clever patterning of IP. It hacks the individual property, like of of the intellect, to say that we I own it. The I own it creates all this competition and a protectiveness, and we never share the knowledge. But by patterning to nature, two things happen. 
That's your library. So we we have versions of huge libraries and museums which are really valuable around the world, like billions of dollars, the Louvre, like you know, billions, if not trillions of dollars of like market value inside all the stuff that's housed in there. The River CN is dirty and they have to clean it for the Olympics. If the River CN has all of the stories, all the paintings, all of those things are stored in the river, then game on, suddenly the river body is worth trillions of dollars and that's the place we go to and we look after the river body. Where the internet becomes interesting is you can pattern those libraries back into nature so you can potentially reactivate songline processes. You can be protecting the knowledge systems of of nature by patterning our stories into nature and then you go from an idea of nature having to just be left behind, left alone to us actually being in relation with it for accessing intelligence and then you got yourself an IP argument on, in the game, which is like, hang on a minute, these like 5,000 like key indicator or cultural indicator species and nature libraries, they're not only, we're not only going to deposit all of our foundation's artwork here, we're actually going to then position the IP of all the ideas of Earth are going to go back to there. And then we're paying an IP tax back to all of these playgrounds and we've got this perpetuity of a marketplace because we haven't reduced it to Indigenous equals like this problem to be fixed outside the margins equals something to contain or to protect or, or something to tame. There is intelligence beyond what we know. And the biggest prize I think our relational economies do really healthily is they meet in the middle and they, a person has to sacrifice their power in saying, I know everything. To, we, I know some things and we will know some things. What will they be? Uh, I, I love that and I feel like um, I've never heard it actually explained to me quite that way before and you know I've heard about giving sort of rights to nature but imagine that that in kind of like an anthropomorphizing way of like okay the nature like this river has human rights and that means that we're not going to pollute it and trample all over it and I know you talk about that as well as um things like, you know, basic income, you know, is it, is it like another intervention that we could make toward a more relational sort of economy? Um, but I feel like you're coming at it from obviously a very different perspective of, of the why. Like we're not we're not trying to make the river human so that we'll value the river as, you know, another, another person. We're actually thinking about this in terms of where we're storing our knowledge and how we connect into it. Yeah, and it doesn't, it's the same as the, the question of like, can I translate what, imagination is and can I do all the work for the person listening? No. Like can the tree, does a tree have to be translated into human language? No. Like but what we do, and which is the second part, like our role as a species is to be custodians. Like when we've been really effective, we understand that we're meant to be in relation with nature, that we rely on it. We work that out still like we're we're a version of like some turbo, um, you know, steroided up like custodian at the moment where we – we're, we're building life up. We're saying, you know, in many ways we're looking after you, other life, but then we kill it to, on scale, you know, feed everybody. There, is a, there are different patterns and ways of working and living with life and death um, which can lead to healthier ecosystems. And the second part is you can still engage with death uh, with an exchange of intelligence. And so I think we've dehumanised or we've, sorry, we've sort of de-lifed um, the intelligence of other beings so we can kill them. Like, and that's been a way of dealing with the mass um, 
consumption of, of other species. I think being able to still have that complexity, like there's a great F. Scott Fitzgerald line, the sign of a first-rate intelligence is holding two conflicting thoughts at the same time and still functioning. We can have compassion, we can have empathy, we can have love and connection to species and that species can die in service and relation to us if we keep the energy moving, if we keep moving in circularity back towards the other species and to that version of that species, then I think you get a richer, um, a much richer ecosystem. And the biggest prize on all this stuff is do you want to be smart or not? Like it's intelligence. Seven million other species on the rock. Like I want to be smart and I'm only going to learn so much from humans and a lot of that's been documented. So if you want to be smart, the processes are outside the human world. I want to go back to a second to something you touched on with organizations and death. And I love at the end how you talk about, um, you know, we push death away. We don't want to think about it in our own lives, much less in the work that we do. And every business alive out there today wants to ensure its longevity and to thrive into the future. And you are kind of suggesting something pretty radically opposite to that. Do you think every organization should be thinking about really consciously, intentionally planning to stop? And, and to pass on and to liberate for others. Yeah, and I think it should be intentional death. Like I think we should muscle up our vocab and look, every organisation is going to die anyway. Like that's that's the inevitable path. What we're doing when we're putting like perpetual, never-ending, forever living, always like strong, impenetrable, never breakable, we're walking into these facades of um of protection from the inevitable, which is we're all going to die. And it's it's that death is where the life is. If you don't design with death in mind, then you are defying the laws of nature. And, again, you're totally out of context and you're totally out of relation. Every organisation goes through some level of a cycle of inverted commas success and let's whatever the matrix, the, the metrics might be, it, that this is the top of the world organisation. And then it at some point either continues to grow till it plateaus and then it plateaus and then it ends up corrupting, decaying and eventually dies anyway. The soul of it dies before it actually dies. And as a like, person who started an organisation, like I love this joint alive. Like, you know, I've had a couple of times where I could have been 20 years now where I could have like done that transition and it's not just me in it but like it's, the transition didn't have a vision except for just like, oh, and then then it will just go on and it will incrementally increase. Like that was the best vision of the, the, the transition. Or it would be like radically different, which is like another, you know, you're birthing another thing. So I, I think what feels really exciting for us, when we said I came across the intentional death date for imagination, like I look at Facebook and, and that case study and there's some gnarly, gnarly, gnarly flaws in the early design around like, the morals and the ethics of that platform like you know it's built off a uh, algorithm to compare who's hot and who's not on a college campus like and make women feel like shit like that's that's not a healthy like dna from which to then build the most influential network on planet earth and i think you know when you look at the bones of what we've done for 20 years you're like, okay, maybe that's what we should be looking at granting licenses to groups to have scaled up networks. And if we can be building pathways where people are, are intentionally thinking about the power of the internet. When we went to build imagination, we looked at the Facebook case study and went, 
look, no matter how strong our moral like, and ethical undercurrent might be or what we've learned over 20 years or how much work we've done, if imagination like blows up to a billion people, I can't handle that. Like that's too much power for any person and I'm in a CEO role. No way. Like, and, and that's where death, like if something gets too big in nature, it gets to a place where it falls, like it, it dies, it, it finds its way, it can't work in synchronicity with everything else. And so by designing, by bringing in a death date for us, it nailed three or four design elements really quickly. One, it created like this turbocharged like um, need for relevance, like a decade. Okay, we got to go. You know, and for most of our team, we're all like, I want to be here in 10 years. You know, like we kind of feel that urgent. So for talent retention, you're like, tick. Um, for motivation, tick. In a decade, we can do more than we probably would have done in 50 years if we had just gone incremental because we can go for the earth shot or the moon shot. We can then really be um, clear on our resources. Like we only want $100 million for the full decade, which is 10 mil Aussie year. It's like two to three mil less than what we ran on at our peak in 2016, like limits, you know, we can and we can do like 10,000-fold what we were doing um, six years, seven years ago. So your capacity can be really, really increased. Risk, suddenly you're not saving for a rainy day. So all of the boardroom conversations around risk where you're saving for a rainy day, you're like, no, we're dying in 10 years, so let's spend that money we really need now and it'll be a bridge to the growth that we need tomorrow. And and then I think it takes out the hidden agenda. Like I can talk to people and be like, I ain't here to build an empire. Like, you know, here's a lab for everybody. We build imagination for everyone. And you attack that um, EIP, like desire thing for the the legacy and in 10 years we want to open source give away all the tools give away the network give leave a directory behind and build this thing for humanity and for every other species on earth full stop nothing else like don't want like the press don't want stardom like we just want to do the thing and get on with it and i think that becomes when you embrace death you get all this freedom and it's probably the freest i've ever felt in leadership um and yeah i think for all of us like if we if we the most important moral philosophical design question, do you as an organisational leader or, or in an organisation believe you are in relation to everything else on earth? Because if you don't believe that you are a part of an ecosystem of organisations, then of course you should never die. But if you believe you're related to every other organisation, then you should be intentionally doing yourself to a death date and then passing on the notes so the rest of the organisations are healthier. Be a leader, be an actual leader, like mentor us, advance pass on the notes, get out of here, not advance and then bring that back inside so you can then build a bigger skyscraper. Like it's what a waste of resources and the most important resource of the wasted there is knowledge being passed on. Well, thank you for spending this time with us today and um, and passing on some of your knowledge. I really do appreciate it. And I feel like it's a conversation that I'm going to mull on for a really long time. What from just, let's say, hoodie economics, is there an idea, a, a, a something that you want to leave people with that you want people to take away and mull on? Is there a recommendation that you would just leave people with as kind of a parting gift for this chat? Yeah, I would say think. Like don't be an unthinking person. You know, the we have a window to be alive and you have a window to think. And you can you can like batten down the hatches and that can be it. Or you can think. And that is the the window for us now as a species is it's probably always been at key moments. Like how many of us are willing to do the thinking? How many of us will actually engage in the ideas and the work that needs to be done? And if we think, we're cool. And after we think like in parallel, 
do that feeling thing um, and we might find our pathway. the ending of that conversation and design with death in mind and what a completely subversive and liberating notion that is you know it's so counter to the uh, fiction um, that drives most businesses or even other organizations that we must grow from strength to strength and live on forever and that is what it is to be successful and that, you know, everything in nature, that everything that is alive ends and we are all connected to something bigger. And so what are we passing on? Um, how can we be intentional about our relationship to the wider ecosystem that we find ourselves in? Um, he's a remarkable thinker. And I think I could probably listen to this episode once every six to 12 months and get something new from it every time. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If uh, you want to go check out others from this season, it's really been an interesting collection of systems thinkers, rebel economists, um, practitioners, people who are looking at what we have and not only reimagining, but remaking it into what it can be. And I have been really inspired um, by all of them. So thank you to everyone who has spent some time with us, whether this hour or this year. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Thank you for being here and we'll see you next time on The Rainmakers. Lily Spencer and I record my part of these conversations from the beautiful Guppy Guppy country on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters and Aboriginal culture. 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I also want to pay a shout out to our producer, Anna Wilson, to my colleague and sometimes co-host, Dr. Millie Rooney. You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Remakers.